If you have a Bible, if you don't, we have some in the recording booth. Give me just a minute to get set up. Okay, last week we began with an introduction to this long book. And so we'll be going through it uh, chapter by chapter and sometimes several chapters. And this is addressed to Israel, but it has application to other people, including us. So it starts with an indictment, God accusing them. And then he moves to the solution and then goes back to another indictment by way of reminder. It applies to Israel. Verse 1 says Judah, that was the largest part of Israel, and Jerusalem, the capital, just like it is today. And what's their main problem? Sin. That's always been the worst problem in the world. Not economics, social justice, crime, racism. Those are all problems, but the main problem is sin. And when that gets taken care of, the other ones will as well. So that's the problem, and the main answer is God. And interesting, as we'll see here, the problem is sin against God, and the answer is to be reconciled to that God. He offers reconciliation and forgiveness. So let's briefly go through this and get some lessons for us tonight. Now, last week we did an introduction based upon verse 1, so we start with verse 2. 2 to 15 describes the problem. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. God was like a father to Israel. Sometimes he's like a husband, but he's a father to Israel by way of covenant, and he's described in at least two places as a father to mankind by way of creation. We're children of God because he created us. But then the next highest level is we that are true Christians are in God's family by way of adoption. We're spiritually his children. And so we can pray our Father who art in heaven. That's part of the new covenant that's superior to the old. And it says here there are children that have rebelled. Prodigal children. And that's the problem of sinful humanity. They've rebelled against God. They you know the story of the prodigal son went out and ate with the hogs. And that's what people are doing today. Um, eating with the, with the devil and with the world. And so he uses that human, that animal analogy again in verse 3. The ox knows its owner. The donkey knows its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Interesting. Animals will have a certain instinct to do certain things. Um, when I lived in Texas, you may remember our family had a little ranch out in the country and there were cattle. Uh, how, do you call, how do you call cattle? Well, I guess you could yell suey or something like that, but the man that would feed them with hay or whatever, he'd just simply, you know, park in a certain place in his pickup truck way out in the middle of nowhere and just honk that horn in a certain way. All those cattle started coming. They knew where the food is. That's why it says here, uh, ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. Some translations have that as a manger. You know what a manger is. That was in the, when Jesus was born, they put Jesus in this little uh, wooden box that had um, hay in it to feed the animals. That's where they put the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. So animals have this instinct. 
You know, just a couple of weeks ago, a member of our church asked me the question, do animals know that there is a God? And I said, well, yes and no. And I point to this verse here. If the ox and the donkey know where the food is, they have some kind of instinct about their creator. But they don't have consciousness like we do and like the angels do. But um, what God is saying here is you're worse than animals. They know where to go to find the food. You should know to come to me, but you're not coming. You remember Jesus used a story like that in Matthew 23. He said, oh, Israel, I wish that you had come to me like a mother hen calling for its chicks. And you know, you know that analogy, a mother hen will cluck and flap its wings when there's a chicken hawk or a storm brewing, and all those little chicks come running to the mother hen, hide under the wings for safety. But Jesus said, here I am like a mother hen saying, come to me, and you won't. And that's what God is saying here. I'm calling out to you, but you're not even as good as the animals that will come for protection or for food. Now we look at the diagnosis uh, verses 4 and following, alas, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity. Iniquity means a kind of sin that's it's, it's inequal, it's inequality, injustice. A brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. In other words, they've turned their back on God and walked away. And then God asks them a question, kind of like a parent with a child or with a doctor with a patient asking questions. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. And here's the diagnosis, like a doctor. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. But instead wounds, bruises, putrefying sores that have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. That's pretty bad diagnosis. It's like someone's been run over by a car and bruised and bleeding. And uh, you'd think they'd say, well, doctor, help me. But Israel's not saying that. And that's why people today, they're sick with sin and they don't turn to God. Notice it said from the sole of their foot to the top of their head. Uh, it's just like Job was stricken with sores all over from the top of the head to the bottom of his feet. This is also a picture of the individual sinner, just like it's not just Israel and all mankind, but each human being. This is a good description of total depravity. Sin affects everything in us, up here down to the bottom of our feet. It affects our mind. Sin affects our heart, our hands, what we do, our feet where we go. Everything about us, it says it's like a body filled with sin, wounds, bruises, putrefying sores. But God is a great physician. He's the only one that can heal us. There's no hope within us. This is like describing um, a fatal disease for which there's no cure. But God says he can cure it. Next verses um, 7 and following. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate. It is overthrown by strangers. Now, they're facing this kind of judgment from the Babylonians. Verse 8, so the daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, is left as a booth in a vineyard 
as a hut in a garden of cucumbers as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, would have been made like Gomorrah. So there's a prediction of doom for Israel, and it came to pass. Prophet after prophet said, you've departed from God, you're into idolatry and immorality and greed. Repent, or I'm going to punish you by letting the Babylonians come in and conquer you, kill you, make the rest of you slaves. That was the doom that they faced, and that's what Isaiah's warning about. How does that apply to mankind? They're facing doomsday. Something far worse than the Babylonians, they're facing the judgment of God himself at the second coming if they live that long. And if they don't, they're going to still get appear at the judgment day. So God warns. Why does God warn people? Because he loves us and he's calling for repentance and he's doing that with Israel in Isaiah. Now it mentions this remnant. Now that's a theme often found in the Bible. You know what a remnant is. It's a little leftover. We have a church lunch here once a month, and afterwards there's always a little something left over. You know, a half a bowl of beans or half a salad or something like that, and people will take it home. It's a remnant. Or you go to a certain store and say, I just need a little remnant of a carpet. I don't need something, you know, 100 feet by 50. I just need a little remnant for my bathroom, for example. And say, oh, yeah, we've got remnants in the back. It's just a little leftover stuff. So God says there is a remnant. Israel is not as big as it used to be, but there's another remnant. There was the godly remnant of Jews that really did believe in God and did not go into gross sin. They were a small, tiny minority. They always were. Even in the good times of Israel, the godly Jews were in the minority. So that continued in the Old Testament. Then you come to the New Testament and you still see a godly remnant that's a tiny minority. Not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the scribes, not the rabbis. Well, who's left? Uh, John the Baptist, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna, uh, those shepherds, and the wise men from the east, and probably a handful of others. They were the remnant Today you have a remnant of Jews that believe in Jesus, a very small number of, we call them Messianic Jews. But the idea of the remnant also applies to Christians. We're in the tiny minority in the world. We're the remnant of those that truly do believe in God, and God will always have a remnant. So he says here, unless the Lord had left us a remnant, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the story. Genesis 19, uh, there was a righteous man named Lot living in this terrible city, Sodom, very close to Gomorrah, and it's described as being extremely wicked. There was gross homosexuality, lesbianism, they were into transgender and all that stuff. They not only had their sacrifices to pagan gods, but they had human sacrifices, including babies, and they would torture people in just unbelievable evil. And so God told Lot, get out because I'm going to punish those cities. They've never repented. And um, then when Lot and his family left, God sent down fire from heaven, burnt them all up. There was none left. So God says, I'm going to treat you like them, 
But there'll always be the remnant. If the Lord had not left us a remnant, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. But something else. Bible says that Israel had become like Sodom and Gomorrah with gross immorality, no value of human life, and they were worshiping other gods. Now, it began to change a little bit in the days of Jesus. Uh, the Jews then weren't into idolatry. But the description of, it says we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what I'm about to say. Description of the United States of America. We pride ourselves. Oh, we're free, the land of the free and the brave. And we have hot dogs on the 4th of July. And oh, yes, and we're the strongest economy in the world. Yes, and we got abortion, pornography, immorality, high crime. Not much different than Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's only by God's grace he hadn't wiped us out like those two cities. Extend that further. To the whole world is becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. Even in countries you never would have expected because of a lot of Christianity. No. Water runs downhill and so do cultures and human beings. They go from bad to worse. Something else here. Look at verses 11 and following. Oh, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Wait a second. There are no people in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's addressing Israel. I wonder if any of our people, Christians in America, have the courage to address our people. America is saying, you're no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. Some of them would say, yes, we're like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're into the occult, like the Sodomites worship Baal. And they're certainly into the homosexuality. They don't have value of human life because they all support abortion. And so you call a spade a spade. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the Lord our God. You people of Gomorrah. To what purpose, here's another one of those questions. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? In other words, they still offered sacrifices and had a semblance of righteousness. But God says, why are you doing this? To what purpose? And then God levels the judgment. Look at the second half of verse 11. God says... I've had enough of your offerings of rams, the fat of fed cattle. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. As if he says, get that livestock out of here. I commanded you to make animal sacrifices, but it's no good if you don't have the right attitude. Get it out. I don't want to hear. I don't want to see this. Get it out of here. That's what God thinks of bad religion. They were hypocritical. They just did this without having a righteous heart. And he says, when you come to appear before me, verse 12, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? In other words, they bring in, verse 13, futile sacrifices to the temple. God says, as bad as that is, you're doing it even in the temple and you're trampling this dirt all over the place. How dare you do that? Can we apply that to churches? Can we apply that to America? Sure can. God is disgusted with hypocritical worship and pagan religion. And there's something even worse than that. Pseudo-Christianity. Where people gather in so many churches and they just go through the motions. Their heart's not in it. And God's disgusted by that. He loathes it. Now he mentions the sacrifices. He said, what was the purpose of those sacrifices? Why did God want to have 
bulls, goats, and these other animals sacrificed? Doesn't he care about animals? Of course God cares about animals. But what he was saying is this, all those were symbols of the great sacrifice. Jesus, he would be the Lamb of God. They missed that. And they thought, well, the value's in these sacrifices. So even though we uh, are committing immorality and theft, but at least if we bring in a lamb and let the priest kill it, then, then we're okay with God. They didn't even think that this was a symbol of their Messiah one day. How do we apply that today? So many churches will have baptism in the Lord's Supper and they don't think of the symbolism of it because they don't really believe in Jesus. And so they're ultimately no different than the people here that God is rebuking them. He also mentions how they misuse their holy days. Uh, verse 13, incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assembly. Can you almost hear God screaming, I cannot endure this iniquity in this sacred meeting. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Verse 14, they're troubled to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Boy, God is speaking bluntly from his offended heart. Why did God ordain those special feast days, Passover, Day of Atonement? Again, those were opportunities for them to come apart from the world and worship God, but they were misusing them. But of course, modern-day Americans wouldn't do that. They would never desecrate uh, the day we remember the birth of Jesus. Oh, yeah? Ask any policeman like Alex. There are more drunk driving offenses and drunk crime at Christmas and Easter than at any other time of the year. Can you imagine? I remember Christian was witnessing to a Muslim. And the Muslim said, I'm not interested. Well, why not? He said, what kind of religion is this when your people celebrate the birth of your founder by getting drunk and committing immorality? If that's Christianity, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Sounds like Isaiah. So there's this hypocritical misuse of special days that should be set aside for God. For example, this next week, Halloween, where'd that get started? Well, it goes back to not just pagan origins, but um, it's All Hallows' Eve. That would be the Eve, the night before All Saints' Day. The, the Catholics had these, well, we have different saints on different days, so we'll just have a day for all the saints and we remember them and, and worship God. And so next thing you know, they're transforming into this pagan thing today with ghosts, goblins, and witches. But God is disgusted with all of that. And their prayers, verse 15, says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. That's not playing some children's game. Spreading out their hands was what they would do when they'd pray, Oh, Lord, hear us. And God says, "You Put your hands down. I don't even want to look at you. He says, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. You lift them up in prayer. Look at the blood of the innocent people on your hands. God does not like hypocritical religion. And so he says in verse 16, and here's where the, the solution begins. Verses 16 to 20, wash yourselves. Not saying take a bath, saying wash away the sins. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Wash yourselves. 
Has it ever occurred to you the Bible says sin is filthy? Filthier in God's sight than anything physical is in our sight. He loathes it. He's disgusted by it. It says back in the book of Leviticus, it is so, sin is so filthy, even the ground wants to vomit you out. You know what that's like when you're sick of something. And Jesus used that analogy in Revelation 3. He says, I'm so sick and tired of you, it's like I want to vomit you. You make me sick. You make me nauseous. So he says, wash yourselves. Now he's not saying you can do this all by yourself. What he's saying is you need to be washed. And so submit yourself to cleansing. Just like in Acts 2 when Peter was preaching, he said, save yourselves. But he's not saying you can do it by yourself. Turn to God who is the Savior. And he says, put these things away from you. Anybody know what the word for that is? When you put away sin? Repentance. And that brings forgiveness and reconciliation. Take your sins and throw them in the garbage can. Flush them down the toilet, say, I'm throwing it away, or it says here, putting it away. So there's the negative and then the positive in verse 17. Do good, do justice. Those are two leading Old Testament themes. <clears throat> this is true social justice. You hear a lot about social justice these days, and a lot of it is not real justice. I remember years and years ago, there was a little phrase going around in certain liberal churches. They said, we're in favor of justice love. Boy, talk about putting together two words that were buzzwords that everybody, nobody could disagree with. Justice love. You know what that was? Homosexuality. They said, this is good, that's just, and it's love, justice love. We need to get it all legalized and approved. That is not true justice. It certainly isn't love. But this, is, this does describe true justice. Learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow that are helpless. It's been said that the best measure of a society is how, does, how do they treat their most helpless people? The elderly? Babies in the womb? Babies born with handicaps and people calling for euthanasia for them? That's not very good social justice. God says seek justice. And you find a true justice taught only by the Bible. Now here's the great promise for their ailment, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. In other words, they're blood red. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, that's dark red, they shall be like wool. Great promise. What he is saying is, wash yourselves, verse 16. All your sins will be washed away. Your files will be deleted all sins pardoned, washed away. All of them. David prayed that in Psalm 51, 7. Wash me, cleanse me, O Lord. Micah 7, 19. God will put all of our sins into the depth of the sea. All of them. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is just and righteous to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103. He forgives all your iniquities. All, past, present, future. There are those that say, no, when you become a Christian, God forgives all of your sins before that, 
but not after that. After that, you've got to earn forgiveness. No. Ever occurred to you that when Jesus died on the cross, all of our sins were future. He knows the future. And when he saves us, he forgives every sin, past, present, future. Sins of what we think, that we say, that we do. All of them. By the way, when he says, come now, let us reason together, what he is doing is condescending to say, think this through. You're guilty. I can forgive you because you've sinned against me. Does not stand to reason. This has sometimes been misused. I don't want to go in depth on this. Uh, they use this in another verse to defend what's called rationalistic apologetics. What's that? How do you defend the gospel? How do you defend Christianity to people ask hard questions? They say, you use reason, logic, tangible proofs. You can't just go with the Bible, they say. I think you can just use the Bible. And so they say, doesn't he say, it says here, come let's reason together. It says in the book of, one of the books of, of uh, Peter, uh, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. So they say, that's how we defend the gospel. Not from the Bible, but from reason and logic. I think they're misusing this. What God is doing is condescending, and this is through his word, through a prophet. That's how we explain the Christianity and defend it, is by the Bible. And that is truly reasonable. Verse 19 and 20, I want to look at one key word. If... You are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word if, very important. It implies there's a condition. If you turn to me, I will forgive you. If you do not, you will be punished. Like a doctor that says, you are sick, but if you take the treatment, you will get better. If you do not, you're going to get worse and you're going to die. If, very important word, implies a condition. I can throw this in as an interesting um, indirect analogy. There's a story of ancient Greece when uh, one nation besieged another uh, city-state behind the tall walls and they said, we're issuing an ultimatum. If you surrender... You'll be treated properly. And then they thundered, if you do not, we're going to kill you all. What's your answer? People inside the city got together and they wrote the answer down, a piece of paper, put it on a rock and threw it over. And it just simply was, if. <laughs> if you break through, we're not going to surrender. They didn't meet the condition. If. It's like God said to Adam and Eve, eat all the fruit here except that one because if you eat that one, you're going to die. If. The gospel comes and says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. But if you do not, you will be punished. So think of the word if and the conditions. Okay, verses 21 to the end of the chapter is the problem again. He repeats the diagnosis, kind of like a doctor calling for your attention. You know, you ever go to a doctor and he gives you the diagnosis, maybe a prescription, and then you come back, let's say, eight weeks later and say, doctor, it hadn't helped. And he says, well, let's see. Let me take your vital signs. Did you take the medicine? Well, no. 
You know, I heard one man tell me he had a certain medical problem, and I said, did you go to the doctor? Yeah. Did you do what the doctor said? He said, no. And I said, why not? He said, and listen to what he said. He said, he's just a doctor. What does he know? What does he know? He's a doctor. He did pre-med at college. He, did, he got an MD. He had to do a residency. He had to do an internship. And you're saying, you know more than him? Uh, <clears throat> do we know more than God? God diagnoses our problem, gives us the remedy, and we'll say, ah, what does God know? He's just God. It's because we don't want to give up our sin. So God, God is repeating the diagnosis in this last part of the chapter to get their attention and to get our attention. So he uses an earthy illustration, verse 21, how the faithful city, that's Jerusalem, has become a harlot, like Sodom and Gomorrah. It was full of justice once, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine is mixed with water. You know, in the old West, you could get shot for selling watered-down liquor. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless or the cause of the widow that comes before them. Notice, again, the fatherless and the widow. So God is more explicit. And once Israel was compared with a bride, like in the book of Hosea, but it says now you're just like a street whore. And the Bible describes apostate religion like that. Committing immorality with sin, with other gods. God says that's no different than whoredom. That would apply to the Catholic Church, liberal so-called churches, cults. They're not the true thing. But thank God there are true churches left that are the bride and not the harlot. Now it says once you were like, you were good. When? Well, like during the days of David or Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, that Idolatry was greatly squashed, but it came back because it wasn't pulled up by the roots. The Christian church once had true justice and righteousness. Or the early church you read about in the book of Acts wasn't perfect, but it was better than what we find today with so many <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> cults and apostate churches. God sent the Reformation. That was a great revival of righteousness and justice and truth. Then there are the Puritans and revivals. But most of those golden ages are in the past. Not today. Oh, that God would do it again. It says here, you become just murderers. Now that would be literal, but also spiritual. Killing people's souls. This diagnosis applies to the United States as well. Notice so interesting, it says in verse 22, your silver has become dross. What's that? Uh, in economic terms, you'd say that's debased currency. Um, I guess I've opened the door, Logan. I can go through it now. It's um, debasing the currency by printing more useless paper money. That is the cause of inflation. When the Federal Reserve says, okay, we've got to crank out more money without anything to back it up, that devalues the money in your savings, in your stock, and which you've saved for retirement. Maybe you put together $5,000, but when they crank out more money, that has now the value of $4,500. And then less and less, they debase the currency. It's cheating people. And it mentions giving bribes to judges. 
What does false religion do? It offers bribes to God. God, make, a, make an exception for me. I don't want to give up this sin, but you cannot bribe God. That insults him. And it says, your wine is mixed with water. They, and that's not like a mixed uh, drink. It's talking about watering it down and still charging the same amount. One of my favorite preachers was the late A.W. Tozer. Boy, he could be blunt. He said, the watered-down gospel that most so-called churches are preaching these days, he said, if it was medicine, it wouldn't cure anybody, and if it was poison, it wouldn't kill anybody. It's so watered-down, it's like milk sop. And he's right. Remember, there was an interview with a leading liberal clergyman, and the person who was interviewing him said, well, can you sum up what you really believe? He said, yeah, but it's a little disappointing because all my message is basically telling people just be a little bit nicer to other people. That's the gospel? That's your whole religion? Just be nice? It's been watered down. Wouldn't kill anybody if he was poisoned. Wouldn't cure anybody. You know, there was a case, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago of a, uh, a psychiatrist, and there are medical doctors over in Kansas City, and he was treating cancer patients. No, it wasn't a, it was an oncologist, not a psychiatrist. And they checked and found out almost all of his patients were dying needlessly in the early stages. And they, the FDA and other ones checked it out. He was selling them the cancer medicine, and he had watered it down. So it wouldn't cure the cancer, but he got rich, fabulously wealthy off of this they arrested him and charged him with, I don't know, like 37 cases of manslaughter. And that happens. People watering it down. It says, your wine is mixed with water. And he even mentions the princes and the judges. It says, everybody loves bribes. In other words, it's just corruption. Verse 24, another key word, therefore. Kind of like that, let's reason together. Okay, here's the logic, God says. The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, says, Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries. That's enemies. I will take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross. I will take away your alloy. In other words, your debased currency, your false religion. I will restore your judges at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness and the faithful city. What he's saying is, through the uh, prophets, I told you to do it. You're not going to do it. I'll do it. And that involves judgment before restoration and the cure. So there's the threat of judgment. Think about that. The justice of God. God never bends it. God certainly never breaks it. In the book of Romans it says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And yet they ignored it. And there are people today that laugh at this. Right, Josh? You're on the streets out there witnessing, and people will laugh at you when you talk about judgment and vengeance. They'll say, vengeance? No, I believe in a God just of love, but not one that would punish. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. God of the Bible says, vengeance is mine. I'm going to repay. But people ignore that. Okay, it draws to a conclusion the last few verses. 
There's again the echo of the promise, verse 26. You will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion, that's Jerusalem, will be redeemed with justice, her penitence with righteousness. There's those key words again. The destruction of transgressors and of, sin and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Judgment is coming. They shall be ashamed of the terebinth. Now, this is a little hard to understand. They'll be ashamed of the terebinth trees, which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. Those were probably used in pagan worship services. You shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. In other words, it's going to diminish. The strong one shall be as tender. In other words, like um, fuel for the fire. The work of it is a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. So God promises blessing, but he also offers threats for those that do not meet the condition of repentance and faith. Verse 27 says, Zion will be redeemed with justice. How? God just doesn't sweep sin under the carpet. The answer is in Romans 3. God met the standard of his justice in order to forgive us. He took the punishment. How could God take our punishment? That's why Jesus became a man. So he could suffer and die on the cross and Romans 3 says, this is how God can justly forgive us our sins. And then verse 27 says, her penitence. That means someone that repents of their sins. So God describes this just vengeance in the various ways the rest of this chapter. And he says, but one day you'll be covered with shame. When? Ultimately at judgment day. People will be ashamed, but not Christians. Romans 10 says, the righteous shall not be ashamed at judgment day. We will walk through the portals of glory unashamed because we've been forgiven. But the unbelievers will be thrown into hell with shame. And it mentions fire in these last few verses. Both will burn together and no one shall quench it. No one will be able to put out the fires. When the Babylonians came, they burnt Jerusalem to the ground. Later the Romans came in after Jerusalem was rebuilt. They burnt it down again. There's a great conflagration coming at the second coming. God's going to burn up the whole world, except for Christians. He takes them out of the world and then incinerates the rest of the world, and that's the beginning of hellfire for them. Hebrews 10.29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. Lastly, what, what would happen with Israel after this? Well, there were a couple of times of revival with Hezekiah, with Josiah, but they eventually went too far and God sent Jeremiah to say, you've gone too far. Repent all you want to. God's still going to send the Babylonians in. It's like a parent saying to a disobedient child, now you know you're going to get a spanking. Oh, but mama, please, I'm sorry. Yes, I'm glad you're sorry. You're still going to get that spanking. And that's what God did with them. And that same Jeremiah in chapter 31 says, You've broken the covenant. It's, it's like you've broken a chair. Why try fixing it again? And God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And Jesus said, he established the new covenant in his blood. It cannot really be broken. Well, that's our study on Isaiah chapter 1. In later lessons, we're going to cover several chapters together and concentrate on certain key verses. Let's pray. Father, we hear the thunder of you through Isaiah in this chapter. Help us to heed it. 
But even as Christians, Father, we should fear your awesome majesty and that that should protect us from sinning. Help us to stay very close to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.